Uh, Genesis chapter 16, if you are using a pew Bible, uh, it is page 11 if you are using the pew Bible. And if you're new to the Bible, it's been a long time since you've come to church and you're trying to find your way around there. The chapter, chapter 16, is at the very bottom on the right-hand side of that page and you'll see the the large numbers are the chapter divisions the small numbers are the verses and we're going to look at the entire chapter this morning but before we do that would you join me as we come to the Lord and we study his word we need God's help and so would you join me in prayer father in heaven May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God. For we are weak, and we need your word. Strengthen us this morning, O God, to receive it as your word, for it is good, and we need it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 16. Uh, Greek mythology tells of a man by the name of Daedalus. Daedalus was a mythical inventor, incredibly gifted craftsman and designer. So much so that uh, his, whatever he worked on, uh, he was able to create such lifelike creatures that those around him thought they, they were real. At one point, he kills his nephew because he's afraid his nephew might surpass him for his creativity and his craftsmanship. And so he kills his nephew. He is exiled from Athens and Greece. And he goes to Crete. And there on the island of Crete, he is hired, so, so to speak, by the king to, to serve him, which he does for a while. But Daedalus is extremely arrogant. He does things his own way, isn't afraid to... Uh, break boundaries, traditions, to, to go and, and to try things out. And so he does just that. And, and just like he found difficulty in Athens and Greece, so he finds difficulty here. And for what he does, he and his son Icarus are confined to the tallest tower on the island of Crete. And while they're there, they're still serving the king. And uh, Daedalus figures out a way by observing the birds. He figures out a way to construct wings for him and his son. And you know the story out of the feathers of the wings, out of the feathers of the birds who have perched in the tower and out of the wax from the candles, he makes for himself and for his son Icarus wings by which they can escape the island of Crete, fly back to the mainland and live happily ever after. But there are two warnings that he gives to his son Icarus. You cannot fly too low to the ocean because in flying too low to the ocean, your wings may become damp with the spray of the sea, causing them to be help, uh, heavy and then therefore difficult for you to use and you will go crashing into the sea. You, need, you can't fly too close to the sea. The other way, though, it lies another problem. You can't fly too high either. Flying too high would expose you to the warmth of the sun and your wings would melt and you would, again, go crashing into the sea and... You may know the story. Icarus and his dad take off. Daedalus showing the way, flying that middle route. But his son Icarus is too much, too much like his dad. That is, he, he's arrogant. And he's going to go things his own way. 
And in going things his own way, he climbs ever higher and higher, and his heart is filled with a sense of divine power being able to fly so high. And as he flaps his arms, his wings, he realizes that they're no longer serving him the way that they had been. And he looks back and he sees that his wings have indeed melted and he plummets to his death in the ocean. And Daedalus, his father, watches it all happen, trying to call his son back to come lower, but his son arrogantly will not listen, going his own way. And Daedalus is reminded of his own arrogance for the rest of his days. The entire Greek myth is a warning against pride. A, a warning of against our arrogance, of thinking that we can do things our own way and that they will all turn out okay. Many of you will be familiar with Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, published and well, recorded in 1968. Some of you aren't, and that's okay. But Frank Sinatra sang this song in 1968, and it has been called America's Anthem of Self-Determination. And here are the lyrics. And now the end is here, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway and more, much more. I did it. I did it my way. Regrets? I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the way, along the byway, and more, much more, I did it. I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all and stood tall and did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. Not to say the things that he truly feels and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show I took all the blows and did it my way. And that, sound, that, that is a truly American song, isn't it? I mean, chest thumping bravado. I did it my way. And if you've ever seen recordings of that song when Frank Sinatra is singing it and, you, and they pan the crowd. Do you know what everyone's doing? Smiling and nodding. Yes, I did it my way. What our text is going to point us to this morning is that doing it my way, doing it our way, doing things our way will only lead to catastrophic failure. It will only lead to pain and suffering. You know, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. And our text shows us what happens when Abram and Sarai worked out a plan to get things done their way. They had a backup, backup plan to what God had in mind. And they executed it. And that backup plan backfired in a big way. So look with me now at Genesis chapter 16. And we can see the madness of doing things our own way. Verses 1 to 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. 
And we, we just need to stop there. Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, we have, have, we have, as we walk through the book of Genesis, we have seen God give this repeated promise and expand on this promise that Sarah, that Abram would one day have a descendant and through him, there would, he would have an untold number of uh, descendants come from him. And yet, we read in verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And we read in verse 3, let's read, read on, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice, heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. Ten years they have received this promise, and ten years she, she has been waiting. Ten long years. She who was barren, she who was, this, this was the penalty of death, the line to be ended, it was shameful. And every passing month, every passing week, every passing day must have been extremely painful for her. A constant reminder of the fact that she had not yet born any children. But this is not Sarai's deepest problem in this text. This is merely the circumstances under which what is in Sarai's heart becomes revealed. Like hot water reveals what's in the tea bag, so this reveals, these circumstances reveal what is in Sarai's heart. And we see that her failure is to trust in the Lord. Sarai, verse 2. So Sarah said to Abram, See now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. The Lord has prevented me from having children. And, and this is a true statement, isn't it? The Lord is in control of all things. He directs all things according to the counsel of his will, the scriptures tell us. There is nothing outside of which is his, under, under his control. And yet, she is not merely stating here a theological truth. You can almost he hear the bitterness Dripping from these words as you read it. The Lord has prevented me from having children. He has restrained me. He has kept me from this thing. She is angry about it. It's as if God, in her view, has robbed her of her right. And under the strange providence of God, he had made this promise to Abram. And yet, ten years later, it had not yet been fulfilled. And if we are all honest, there are times in which we experience that sh same kind of strange providence of God. And this past year, for many of us, has represented that strange providence of God, where hardship and bitterness, fear, uncertainty have reigned, reigned supreme. Anxiety has seemed to bubble under the surface of so many of our daily interactions. 
We wrestle with the presence of evil and injustice and in pain in the world. We wrestle with those things even in our own circumstances and daily lives. Why isn't life at home better? Why isn't work better? Why, why do these people act this way? Why are they treating me this way? Why do I see these things still evident in me? Why am I not the person I'm trying so hard to be that God has called me to be? Why is sin still so strong? We cannot imagine what God intends to do with our pain. We, we are like people who, who have a Persian rug and, and, and they only see it from the underside where the, the fragments are and the threads are all frayed. They seem chaotic. The colors seem to be jumbled up with no purpose, no sense of style. And, and you can't figure out what is, what is this supposed to look like? And that's what life feels like in this world. It, it makes no sense. But on the other side of eternity, in the eyes of God, He is the one weaving all things together. He is the one who has that tapestry, that rug, and all the colors, therefore, work together to to shine a, a spotlight on his glory and on his grace and on his justice. She is blind to it just as we are. And rather than trusting God, she accuses him. Well, we must believe what Sarai needed to believe. She needed to believe in the promises of God. He had already given her countless reasons to believe that these promises were going to come, come true. And you and I have a far greater reason to believe the promises of our God. Paul writes in Romans that if God has given us his own son, how shall he not freely give us all things? That if, if God sent his own son into the world, why would we doubt him when he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death? And yet, we do, don't we? Maybe not verbally, but somewhere in our hearts, somewhere in our actions, in our minds, we, we wonder, Father, have you abandoned us? Are your promises all for naught? John Newton writes this, How unspeakably wonderful it is to know that all our concerns are held in the hands that bled for us. And a little later, he writes that the storms are guided by the hands which were nailed to the cross. Whatever you may find yourself in this morning, just as Sarai did, waiting for the promises of God to come true, feeling every day the added pressure of time. Trust in the Lord. He has given us His own Son. Our Savior bled for us, was crucified for us, and He will not allow one of God's good promises to us to fail. But Sarah lacks this faith, and so she comes up with this backup plan. We see this in these verses. 
Verse 2, so Sarah said to Abram, See now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Abram, Sarai, gives her maid servant over to Abram to be his second wife here, a, a secondary wife, and, and her children were going to serve Abram. This is her, her backup plan. And, and on the surface, it has the appearance of being faithful. You could almost hear her justifying it to Abram. Well, sure, God made that promise to you, but he never made the promise that it would be through me. So it's going to be your child, but it's just not going to be through me. It'll be in our name, and I'll, we'll adopt the child, and we'll raise it as our own, but it'll just come through someone else. See, we are working the loopholes here. Technically faithful, practically faithless. There's something else going on, and we, we have to wrestle with this because we, we read this and we are rightly, I hope anyway, disturbed by the fact that here this man of faith, this man of God, the one who will become the father of Israel, is now engaged in polygamy, taking to himself a second wife. If you've ever struggled with some of the cultural things that you find in the Bible, you can kind of join the club. Maybe you have listened to some of the old songs, young people, that your parents or grandparents enjoyed when they were kids, and you, you don't always get the references. They use terminology, and you're like, what are you, what are you talking about? I, I don't understand that. Now, now magnify that tenfold and a hundredfold. We're not talking about... 20 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 60 years ago. We're talking about close to 4,000 years ago. We're talking about 4,000 years ago in a different country on the opposite side of the world. Of course there are going to be cultural differences that you and I are, are going to have to wrestle with. And one of the cultural differences is that it was socially acceptable, common even, for men to have more than one wife. According to various legal codes in their day, this was a typical way for them to operate. And so it's not like they are breaking with tradition or actually being odd in terms of the world. They are doing exactly what they see everyone else doing here. This is common in their day. It's acceptable to their world. But if, we, if you've been keeping up with the story of the Bible, you cannot help but notice that though it may be acceptable to the world, it is unacceptable to God. When we read this chapter, you'll know, you'll be able to tell that there is no outright, explicit condemnation of polygamy in this passage. And yet, one of the things that this overriding storyline through the Bible is that whenever we see men taking to themselves multiple wives, or whenever we see a departure from what God has said regarding human relationships and marriage, one wife, one, 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 wife, one husband together, there is pain, there is suffering, there is hardship. 
And if we're honest, there are all sorts of things in our own culture that are acceptable, common, Even polygamy is being argued for, along with many other forms of sexual immorality. And yet, despite these things growing more common in our day, they are no less condemned by God. Nothing in our world has changed or altered one letter of God's word. Our feelings, our desires, no matter how strong, No matter how persistent they have been in us, they do not excuse going things our own way. So brothers and sisters in Christ, do not trust in your own way, but submit your way over to the Lord. Trust in God's way, because what we will see here is that soon after this whole, all these shenanigans take place, as my dad would say everything begins to fall apart. It all begins to unwind. Look with me at verse, the end of verse 4. So Abram goes into Hagar. She conceives. And when she, that's Hagar, saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Literally, that is picturing that she is now hating, cursing, opposing Abram and Sarai. And Sarai responds by saying to Abram, verse 5, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Everything begins to fall apart here. And it's it's no surprise whatsoever. There is frustration between now uh, Hagar and her mistress, between Sarai and Hagar. There is now friction between Abram and his wife. And there are incredible parallels that we see from this passage to Genesis 3. And just as in Genesis 3, you have Abram, I'm sorry, you have Adam, who's listening to the voice of his wife, leading him astray to do what he knows he should not do. So in this passage, you have Abram listening to the voice of his wife, which isn't an argument meant for you to not listen to your wives. Let's be clear about that. That is not the storyline, that, that is not the, the moral that we are to take away from this, okay? Don't be, don't be saying, honey, see? pastor told me, I don't have to listen to you. That's not what he is arguing for. What what is being said is that Abram has stepped back from taking leadership in his home. That is, when his wife desires to do something that's wrong, rather than leading and guiding in the right way or standing firm, this is where we are going to go. This is what God has said. He is listening to her. He is following her into sin rather than leading her into righteousness. That is the issue. More than this, just as Eve takes of the fruit and gives it to Adam. So that same terminology is found here. Sarai took Hagar, her maid, and gave her to Abram. And just as that result, the result of that sin in Genesis 3, 
meant that Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden, so Hagar is driven out of the presence of Abram and Sarai. The terminology here that Moses is weaving together is showing us that Abram, for all of his faith, is still failing the same way that Adam and Eve have failed. If we have hoped that perhaps Abram is that redeemer, that savior, that deliverer mentioned in Genesis 3.15, this is one more nail in the coffin to show that Abram is not that deliverer. He himself fails in the same way, but there's another parallel that's happening. And it's ironic, it's that it's a reversal on what happens in the book of Exodus. There you have the people of God who are fleeing the oppression of their slave masters and the abusive slave masters in Egypt. And here what you have in Genesis chapter 16 is the, this Egyptian woman who is running from the people of God because they are treating her harshly and abusing her in some way. Do you, do you see that? The first readers of this, the, the people of Israel coming out of, the, coming out of Egypt. I wonder if, if this dawned on them, if they saw this immediately. Abram and Sarai are acting in the very same way that their captors once acted towards them. Well, Moses is trying to show us is that by failing to trust God, Abram and Sarai, these heads of God's people, they're acting no better than Adam and Eve, no different than the slave masters in Egypt. Failure to trust God's ways puts us in the way of being an enemy of God himself. And this is where our backup plan leads. Brokenness, abuse, suffering, pain, and it leaves us with a picture of Abram and Sarai that is unsettling. We're not sure exactly what kind of abuse. It's not clearly laid out. We're told she simply mistreats her. And you can't downplay that because Hagar's only hope as a pregnant woman was to run the, 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 the long distance back to Egypt, was to try to escape through a treacherous, on a treacherous journey back to her homeland. Whatever abuse it was, it was serious, it was significant. Verbal, physical, emotional, mental, whatever label it may be, yet it was so significant, it drove her from their presence. And it leaves us wondering, what do we do with the people of God when we see them fail? One of the things it ought to do, however, as we read this chapter, is it, it ought to give us a greater sense of confidence in God's word. It ought to give us a greater sense of confidence in God's word. Imagine if you were Moses, and you were simply making all of this up as, as might be leveled at some, or leveled by some, an accusation leveled against the scriptures. This is all mythological. This isn't genuine. This isn't historical. This isn't real. And you're making this up. And you want people to respect and honor Abram and Sarai. You do for them what almost every other public leader does today, right? 
sweep the faults under the rug, cover them up. And yet what we see in the, in the Word of God regularly, consistently, is that rather than covering up the mistakes of God's people, it exposes them. It is an honest and accurate and truthful representation of what happens. You can trust it. And it helps us to see that just because God's people are God's people doesn't mean that God's people always act as God's people. You can find books and you can go online and find old documents written by Christians living in the South arguing for, arguing from Scripture for slavery. What we find is that if we're simply reading God's word as it is given to us, it leaves us with no grounds for that kind of slavery to continue. For what was done in this country for many years, not to have any support from the scriptures. It's not that they were reading scriptures honestly, but rather they were departing from what God said. The scriptures give us an accurate, accurate way to follow the Lord. And when, script, when Christians depart from it, we muddy the waters. We give an inaccurate testimony of what God says, of what God's way is. We come up with our own plan, plan our, our backup plan. And it does more than confuse things. It leads people astray. But I want you to notice God's compassion and mercy in this chapter. And it starts with verse 7. Verse 7. We have this individual that shows up on the scene. Hagar, meeting Hagar in the wilderness. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child. And you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. So who is this angel of the Lord? Well, it's not so much an angel that has come to, to represent God. Rather, this is an angel who is himself, is God coming in the form of an angel. We see this in, a, there, there are several hints in this, but while it is called the angel of the Lord, but in verse 11 and verse 13, and the end of verse 11 and then again in verse 13, it Rather than being called the angel of the Lord, it is simply addressed as the Lord. More than that, when he is speaking, he speaks in the first person. He speaks for God, not saying God will do this, but rather in verse 10, I will multiply your descendants. So this angel isn't speaking for God as much as it is God speaking in the form of an angel. 
And what we see happening through this passage is God turning human failure and sin into blessing. He commands Hagar in verse 9, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her. Can you imagine that command as Hagar? What? Why would I ever go back? But God is directing her just as she left in a way in in cursing Abram and Sarai. Now he is going to direct her to go back to put herself under the place of blessing. For where, for those who bless Abram, God will bless. And those who curse Abram, God will curse is what he says in chapter 12. And so by going back and serving and honoring, he is putting her in the pathway to be blessed. And the Lord blesses her in a way that we would not expect, that she does, she does not merit. He extends, the, he extends part of the blessing of Abram to her by promising that she herself will have a son and from him will come many descendants that cannot be counted. This isn't the same redemptive blessing that's given to Abram, but it is a significant blessing nonetheless. And while this blessing will be complicated, read in verse 12 that this, her son is going to be a a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. Yet, he is going to be numerous. There are some things that we need to see in this passage that show us in a special way who our God is. First, I want you to notice in verses 7 to 8 how the Lord addresses her. He says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring, on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? We have known Hagar's name up to this point. But we have not known Hagar's name because Abram and Sarai have said it. In fact, if you were to take the time to reread real quickly Genesis chapter 16 verses 1 to 6 again, you will find that Abram and Sarai don't actually say her name. She is my maidservant. Your maidservant. God is the only one who calls her by her name. He's the, they, they, they see her as less than them. They saw her as less than human. God saw her for who she was. Hagar. He calls her by her name. He dignifies her. He treats her as a person. He asks, where are you going? Not because God doesn't know. But rather than simply telling her what to do, he engages her personally, dignifies her. And the Lord names her son. He says, verse 11, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And Ishmael means God hears. Abram and Sarai failed to hear her. They failed to see her. 
but God doesn't. She will name her son Ishmael because God has heard her. And you can see her response in verse 13. She runs back. Then she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, calling him, you are the God who sees, or you are the God who sees me. And this is significant. This is the only time in all of Scripture where someone names God. People will name places after God. They will name things after God. They will name events but this is the only time someone names God. You are the God who sees, or you are the God who sees me. He goes on, for she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. She not only sees that God sees her, but she names this well, Bir Lahai Roy, that is the well of the living one who sees me. Do you see where her, her hope is focused? She is looking after the Lord. She is looking on the Lord and trusting in him. Her, her focus is not on her. It's not on what she has done or what she might do. She is trusting wholly and completely in God at this moment. He is the one who hears me. He is the one who sees me. When no one else will, he does. This whole passage is a reminder of who our God is. He is the one who knows us. He is the one who knows you by name. He hears you. When you feel like no one else does, he does. When you feel like that person that you talk to just doesn't listen. When the people at work ignore you and ride roughshod over you. Whether it be at school, students, or at home with your parents. Whether it be in a relationship with someone else. Perhaps you are struggling this morning feeling that you are not heard, you are not known, you are not seen, you are not cared for. But God cares for the outcast. He cares for the despised. He cares for the rejected and the lowly. Abram and Sarai have the promises. They have wealth and they have riches. But they have forgotten this. They have forgotten that mercy and compassion of God are for the outcast, the destitute, the weak, and the vulnerable. Friend, do you identify with Hagar this morning? Pushed down, mistreated, despised. Perhaps you feel invisible. And there are times where the, where the darkness just closes in. Let me encourage you two things this morning. One, would you, would you contact me or one of our elders or one of, our, one of the people in this church that you know and trust? Would you let us bear this burden with you? You are not alone. 
You are loved. You are cared for. If you're a member of this church, if you've been a part of this church family for years, we regularly, I regularly, weekly pray for you by name. Brother and sister in Christ, do not allow your feelings of loneliness and despair to rule what is really real. The second thing is, before you even come to us, go to the Father. Go to your God, for He knows what you are experiencing. Isaiah 53 tells us this about Christ, that He was despised, He was rejected by man, He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was one with whom men and women hid their faces. He knows. So you today, this very afternoon, this very moment, can look to Him, can call on Him. For He will hear you. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And if there is justice and vengeance to give, you can guarantee that he will give it. Brother and sister, do you see how greatly God loves those who are weak and vulnerable? Those who are despised and rejected, those who are outsiders? Who do you find it difficult to treat with respect? Is it someone in the church family? Is it someone at work? Is there, is there someone at home? That when you speak to them, your words are dripping condescension? If God has so cared for us, ought we not to love and care for others like this? If God has heard Hagar and seen her, how much more ought we to work to hear and see and love those whom the world and others may deem to be worthless? The backup plans of the world will lead to pain and suffering, abuse and oppression. But in his mercy, God hears and sees. And in Christ Jesus... He rescues. Friend, if you have never trusted in that Savior who suffered for you, let me urge you this morning to trust Him. And you who have entrusted all to Him, brothers and sisters, do not fail yet again, day after day, to look and hope and on Him. He has not left you alone. He will not abandon you. He loves you. May we so love one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are both encouraged this morning from this text 
and we are chastened by it. We are encouraged because we can be sure that in Christ we are seen, we are heard, and we are loved, having trusted in him. And yet we are challenged because we know how, far, how often we ourselves have gone astray. We know how often we ourselves have treated others as less significant than ourselves. Father, forgive us. Forgive us. Grant us repentance. Grant us humility. Help us to love one another as you have loved us in Christ Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.